0: Did you know 90% of top performers have a high emotional intelligence and a higher than average annual income? As one of the most highly valued skill sets, Emotional Intelligence, or EI, is what distinguishes outstanding leaders. Deepen your EI skills today with the Daniel Goleman Emotional Intelligence course. A 12-week online course to develop your inner capacity. Become a stellar leader and build high-performance teams. Save your seat and $50 with the coupon code PODCAST. Learn more at courses.keystepmedia.com. That's courses.keystepmedia.com. Don't forget to enter coupon code PODCAST at checkout for $50 off your registration.
1: I need a
2: napkin. What makes you happy? Temple Shalom. Temple Shalom. What do you like about Temple Shalom? I like it about having snacks and
3: having, looking at the cannon and
2: having pizza. My bubble, my baby and mama. Baby and mama. Thank you, Amelia. Appreciate it. I felt <laughs> too.
0: Before we get started today, we'd like to share the wisdom of one of our listeners here. Kelly Huber left a message for us on our Speakpipe app. In it, she gets to the root of happiness in her journey of self-acceptance. The bravery that it took to be honest with herself and her family is astounding and inspiring. Knowing and loving myself has been a focus of my own journey recently. So Kelly's story speaks to me personally and deeply, but the clarity that she offers with her first person experience of happiness is a powerful message for us all. Kelly Huber, I see you and I am grateful to you for helping me. You are beautiful. Thank you for sharing your story and your wisdom.
4: Hello, First Person Plural Team. My name is Kelly Huber, and I just wanted to send a voicemail in regards to where I found my happiness during a tough time. I am now a 50-year-old trans woman who transitioned at about the age of 40, and then that process had to explain to my whole family, including my ex-wife now and my children about who I was and where I was going in life. And during that period of time, the amount of judgment I felt from people in my life was so heavy. So the place that I found my happiness was, one, on my mountain bike and in nature, and more importantly, sitting with nature and feeling nature around me. And the beauty of it was, is that nature reminds me that if we don't have all the barriers of social constructs, that you can sit with things that just accept you for who you are and what you are at the moment. And that's where I found the beauty and the happiness in life. And perhaps that's what I seek in other people is what I find in nature. And that's an acceptance of who you are as an individual and as a person. And for me, that's where true happiness lies is for people to feel and see and be with the person you are. Thank you for doing this podcast. For a person who's been through a lot in my life, it is so wonderful to listen to a podcast that is seeking out the true happiness in life, like I have done. It has been just as important to me to listen to this podcast as to any therapy I've been through. So I appreciate everything you are doing. Keep it up. Thank you.
1: You're listening to First Person Plural, Emotional Intelligence and Beyond. I'm Elizabeth Solomon, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Daniel Goleman and Hanuman Goleman. Hi, Dan.
0: Hi, Hanuman. Hi, Hi, Liz.
5: What a pleasure to be here with you.
0: Hey, Liz. Hey, Dan.
5: This is the third episode in our three-part series on the topic of happiness. For those who've been following along on our journey, you've had a chance to hear from Yale professor Lori Santos, who illuminated the behavioral science of happiness and well-being. We then spoke with consumer behavioral specialist Natalie Nahai, who shared her wisdom on the role that consumerism plays in our collective happiness or unhappiness. Today, we take our investigation to church, so to speak. We'll talk with pastor and community leader Wesley Morris to look at the role that community connection and spirituality play in our happiness.
0: If religion isn't your lens, then uh, please feel free to connect with what Wesley is saying in any way that's meaningful to you. Wesley is a pastor, so he brings a religious perspective. He's a pastor in a non-denominational church.
1: Dan, I'm wondering if you have a story about a time you've struggled to find happiness or the role that spirituality or community play in, in your own happiness.
5: Sure. Recently, uh, maybe a couple of months ago, I got a very negative, scathing, vitriolic review of my first book, Emotional Intelligence in the New Yorker. And oh, my God, I was so upset. I felt uh, anger and fear and shame and disgust, like every negative emotion you can name washed through me. And I wanted to be defensive. I wanted to go on a counterattack. But, you know, two things helped me. One was that I had just learned a practice from a spiritual teacher where when you have a strong, upsetting emotion, you just sit with it. You accept it. You just let it wash through. And I did that. And you know what? It worked. It waned. And then I felt pretty good. And then I talked to friends, to family, to close associates. And they all told me the same thing. You know, it really doesn't matter. You should just let it go. And so between kind of my spiritual practice and those who I feel really close to, it really disappeared for me. And I felt pretty good at the end.
1: Dan, I love what you're saying here, you know, that both your your practice and your community helped you through receiving that criticism. But I also want to add here that it was that practice and that community that also helped you take in that criticism. And I know that that criticism is actually has been informing your evolving thinking around your model of emotional intelligence. So it's not just that we're able to sort of lean into those pillars in order to not look at something or not deal with something. It's that when we're able to sort of soften the initial defensiveness or the initial rage, then we can really look underneath and see what here is of value and and what can I take in.
0: I have been so appreciating the idea of creation and being a part of creation and of creating that is agency. And that is such an important aspect of somebody who's acting with emotional intelligence, with the self-awareness and the presence of uh, being connected with ourselves and others
1: I appreciate the lens of creating because, in truth, anyone can be a part of creating. And I think this is a great follow up to our conversation with Natalie because we begin to talk a lot with Lori as well about the intersection of happiness and purpose. And one thing that Natalie points out is that, um, you know, on the whole, especially in America, people's participation in religious communities, in the church, has been waning, and people have been looking to different places in society to sort of fill that need for meaning and to answer some of the existential key questions that we sit with as humans.
5: Let's hear the conversation between our correspondent, Gabriela Costa, and Wesley Morris.
3: Amen. I'm just glad to be in the house of the Lord. This morning, I've already dealt with anxiety. I've already dealt with that spirit of gossip. I've already been frustrated this morning. Somebody called me in the spirit of judgment. But right now, Uh Uh create in me a clean heart of God, and renew in me a right spirit. So it's not me that's going to follow my dear brother. But it's a long train of things that can't go through. going to be here after. So I'm just asking the Lord just to use us for a little while longer. I'm a walk and talk kind of preacher, but the Lord said, just preach the word. I'm going to go right into it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.
2: What you just heard is an excerpt from Pastor Wesley Morris's sermon given at his non-denominational community church in Greensboro, North Carolina. Not only is Wes a senior pastor of faith and the associate director of programs with the social justice nonprofit Southern Vision Alliance, but he's also a dedicated coach, facilitator and community organizer and chaplain. He's an internationally recognized leader who uses his dynamic speaking talents to inspire all who have the opportunity to hear his voice. And hopefully you got a little bit of a peek and experience of that just now. And I happen to know Wes personally from the Emerging Leaders Project, which is a leadership incubator for conscious social change. Welcome, Wes. I'm so thrilled to have you.
6: Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Good morning.
2: Good morning. So as you know, this is our third conversation in a series around happiness for the show. And we've had a chance to talk to several folks, including two psychologists, actually, Lori Santos and Natalie Nahai, that um, they talked to us a little bit about not just the the idea of happiness, but some of these assumptions that we make as a society that we think make us happy, like wealth and stuff and status. And they broke that down and showed us a little bit more about psychologically and what neuroscience suggests truly makes us happy, which is connection and our values and living true to our purpose. And it. It was really fascinating to hear them break it down in that way, because our society really does emphasize this idea of happiness as such an extreme, right? And I'm wondering if that feels consistent to you in your personal experience in terms of what you would define as happiness.
6: Yeah, I think that the way that I come to happiness and understanding the definition, I reflect first on picture books. That this smiling face is happy and this frown with the upside down smile is sad. And journeying with those definitions and having socialization happen, having my own experiences that uh, I've come to learn that happiness for me is in response uh, or it's a reaction. And, you know, sometimes it's put at odds with other words like joy. And saying happiness is fleeting, and joy is lasting, and so I'm I'm navigating those definitions even now, and what comes up for me. But I'm I'm so glad that you said connection, because um, connection can happen in a place or a circumstance that that makes you feel good, and connection can also happen in a place where you need to be comforted. Um, there's a, a proverb in in, in our tra- faith tradition. It says that blessed are they. Who mourn for they shall be comforted. And I was thinking about how connection happens in the midst of mourning, and it may not resonate with the word happy, but the the experience might be that I've seen people that have uh, traveled with me in difficult, challenging circumstances, and time passes, and I see them again, and I'm happy to see them. <laughs> I'm genuinely happy, and so in as much as struggle or or challenge or suffering is a part of life, and and this is part of my understanding from being a chaplain and my appreciation, why I would say that I'm a chaplain even often before I say I'm a minister, Uh, is because those meetings, those moments uh, as a chaplain and, and going through the concentration of suffering, whether it be in a hospital or Um, in the service as a fire chief, you know, or in different institutions, you can be a chaplain for a sports team, but the concentration of human experience that you are able to get and moving from room to room, a person to person, those one-on-one experiences, I mean, really that those connections bring me, bring me a form of happiness that is distinctly different than the picture book, (laughs) Um, but I'm glad we have something to go off of, uh, you know, the smiles are good, but but it, it deepens um, to understand that the picture is 2D and life is 3D. And in some sense, how do I move from the ideal to the practical?
2: Yeah, yeah. And, and something we've learned in this process of talking and distilling down this idea of happiness is that really what we should be seeking is this idea of peace or satisfaction. Because happiness, just like sadness, like you talked about in the picture book, is an extreme Right, it, we can't actually live in the extremes all the time, and you're navigating, working with so many people in their real, complex worlds, and that's that's a lot of responsibility for somebody in the middle of a world that we're in right now. Right, we're living a public health crisis, social justice crises left and right. We're experiencing environmental crises. People are experiencing on a personal, interpersonal, and kind of macro scale, something that's probably more challenging than many of us have lived in our lifetimes. And I'm wondering for you what that's been like as someone who is at the center of community connection, as somebody who holds that space of supporting them.
6: I'm looking out and seeing and sensing the world around me. And and reading the, the news and 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 hearing all the happenings, just like you talked about, it's a ser- a series, cyclical almost. And after a while, it, it does become a bit of a a spiral. And if it's if it stays flat, it doesn't feel like you're moving up the spiral staircase. It just feels as if you are going in circles. And and so this tradition that I keep talking about, this faith, this this way of moving and believing in the world has been um, more and more revealed to me. And so one model that helped me think about, you know, what you're referencing is, is change and transition, that change happens quickly. It can almost happen in a flash, just like the extreme of happiness, but transitions take more time. And so even when I sat down, uh, my organs and my body was getting used to sitting down, I, but I sat down quickly, that's a change. But the transition to, to being settled and, and in this new space, um it, it takes more time and so i see that as as how i pair with people uh, we call it accompaniment as well to accompany someone uh in that right and so the extremes and uh you know the mountaintops become come plains and the valleys become plains and 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 having all these ways of coming to this this core experience of having a you know a spike or if you will um, it comes to bringing it back to a plane, I think. And for me, that's a beautiful place. It may not be as uh, exciting, but I, I, as I get older, and I am getting older, I mentioned my <laughs> mentioned my one little piece of salt in my pepper beard, uh, got excited about that. But I did realize that as, as I get older, um, the accumulation of experiences give me quite a bit to reflect on, and I would do it an injustice if I didn't take the time personally to do that. understand better my world this world that is created in almost an aura as I meet and touch someone else's world and so I'm translating these experiences I'm translating what has happened I'm sharing that and oh what a deep wellspring of joy and happiness when you get understood when someone takes the time to hear and listen about your changes and your transitions when your words are heard and you get to hear and so the gift of community and, and me being at a center of one of those sites, being a pastor, where someone will ring the doorbell in the middle of the week, and you never know what's on the front porch, but they, they see you as a site of community. And I was told that you know, preaching is about 10% of what you'll do as a pastor. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's one way of conveying a message. But you also to carry a kind of personality and work towards a kind of spirituality that that holds space, not only for others, but but re-understanding who you are.
2: And so much of community work, I have in the past worked a lot in the social work space. And that is a huge aspect of understanding how to work with others is First, going in internally, introspectively, understanding your own experience, and then getting to a place where you can connect to how that influences the way that you work with others. And I love that you're talking about that because I do see your role as a faith leader as someone much like a social worker right someone who is a resource to the community and and provides that comfort and direction and guidance to others and i'm wondering if we could actually go back um take me all the way back take me to the beginning what what made you who you are today what defined your values your purpose and how did you get here
6: yeah i would say navigating uh, being the youngest of four. So how did I get here <laughs> being the youngest of, of four? Um, three, three siblings that I, I love dearly and having my mother and father. Those are my first experiences. And then, then going and having my first friendships form at the church. I was one of those ushers, playing the drums, uh, doing all the things um, in my church community. And that was made available by by folks that I now have a, a greater appreciation than I think I could have ever imagined. And then my neighborhood, I had a really powerful experience with uh, two of my friends who are twins, and this was one of those defining moments along the way. And uh, I remember going to their house and I had just gotten back from a conference. Uh, it was a bit of an evangelical conference of how you get the word out and make sure folks are are, are getting confessing themselves and you know, trans. <laughs> And, and I, I remember being in their front yard and they were Muslims. And they, they began to ask me questions. And they said, you know, I, I know you've been reading and learning a lot, you know, but it, you know, how do you, how do you feel about Malcolm X? You know, they, I heard you read about Malcolm X. How do you feel about Malcolm I said, he's good, you know, I'm learning a lot, reading a lot about I heard his speech. He said, well, you know, he was a Muslim. Um, what do you think about him in heaven and hell? You, you, think, you think he went to heaven? Well, I don't know. You know, you had to. You have to do something a certain way as a Christian. You know, you have to confess your. And I kept finding, and they kept asking series of questions. What about Gandhi? You know, you you talk about nonviolence. You know, what about him? What about his outcome? And and then they asked the, this question, the last question. They said, "Well, what about us? You know, they, they said we're Muslims and we are friends. Uh, what about you? Uh, what about us? do we go to heaven or do we go to?" He-? And I was like, "Well, you all, you go to." I said, "I said something's going on here." <laughs> And I began to say that that's that's not my position. And I think that that's when I began to temper the judge aspect that I think all of us have, the aspect of judgment to discern and to make difference and, and to think about that. But there was inside of me a, a deep wellspring of compassion. So I'm very sensitive on questions of difference and how we work and meet across difference. And so those sensitivities emerged as different in when I got into university where went to North Carolina a and University, shout them out, the historical Black college in Greensboro, North Carolina. Um, and they really, I really got to know who I was and I got grounded and I began to read well outside of the texts that were required, had amazing teachers as Woodbury. I always have to shout her name and Dr. Brown, Millicent Brown and, and others. And uh, they really had me on a search for knowledge. If you can imagine 18 year old Wes at his computer Uh, listening the big box computer with the big back and listening to the Fred Hampton's voice um, proclaim about uh, justice and freedom and liberation and what that meant at its core for people uh, who are struggling and dealing with poverty and me having about 15 books all around me reading a page or two at a time. But I think that those experiences early on between, you know, coming up in the church, having some experiences with friends, uh, ac- academics and, and reading, really, reading and writing, um, those became really important to me, and I became a sounding board for my friends. They were like, let's go to West, let's talk to them about all our problems. <laughs> so I said, well, I guess I'm gonna be a pastor one day, <laughs> and uh, and the last thing I note, I, I, I will say ministers that I've, I've, I've sat under have really meant a lot. Uh, W.L. Morgan, I, I'm thankful for him, because when I got older and I became a pastor myself, I, I had to go back and actually Uh, apologize. I said, I judged you too harshly. Uh, There was a time that I left the church um, because I thought they weren't speaking to what I needed. And now that I'm in this position, I I went back and I said, you know, I, I just didn't know. Um, And he hugged me (laughs) and he said, he said, that's all right. You know? And so it is something when you grow up and and you can really make a real self-assessment and say, you know, I judged some folks a little bit too harshly because I didn't know what they were experiencing. I didn't know, I just didn't know. And so I'm glad that that, that I had that forgiveness experience because it's opened me up uh, in many other ways for many other relationships.
2: That That's such a beautiful practice of going back to someone and actively apologizing. And that to me is true connection, right? If you were able to connect with him on a deeper level through something that I think many people would define as an act that takes place in unhappiness, right? In the, in a source of unhappiness, but it led you to connection, which is joy, which is peace. And you're talking to this other piece about being able to bridge across difference in faith And that's maybe an assumption that a lot of folks make about faith leaders. And I know, you know, from our history books, not just here, but coming from Latin America, religious leaders tend to also be leaders of social movements, right? You mentioned Malcolm X. We talked about Gandhi. We talked about Martin Luther King Jr. all the time. But there are so many more, right? And it's because you're at the center of your community. You get to see what's happening to your people, and to others across the faiths. And I'm wondering what position has coming to this role given you to be able to see and be a part of community movements?
6: Oh, I'm so glad that you asked that question because the Beloved Community Center and Reverend Nelson Johnson, you'll hear me mention so many people's names because they have always just given me so much. I give it back out, and that's actually my prayer. I say, please let me get out all of these gifts that I've been given. Let, let me get it all out before I have to leave this earth. Please, just whatever it is, if I have to write it, if I have to say it, in one thing. But, but I, I will say that Reverend Johnson Miss Joyce Johnson, whom um, welcomed me to this beloved community in Greensboro, um, worked a community truth and reconciliation process after a historical tragedy in Greensboro called the Greensboro massacre. And I saw that these folks who have been in this community for 40 or 50 years and been advocating in every direction that justice calls them and to speak boldly and to know that they came through such a rough path uh, to still stand in that and to hold space for what we called our Wednesday meetings. That was sort of my first introduction. The Wednesday meeting is the community meeting. Anybody, everybody welcome. And in a time when we were able to hold space together, we met in this one back room day after day, I mean, week after week and year after year. And you can imagine the stories that come when the doors are wide open. I mean, folks who were genuinely at different odds of the spectrum of political belief, of religious instruction, of of life experiences, having to discuss with each other. I'll never forget, we had a judge come in And at the same time, a person that they judged in their courtroom, in the same room. And I remember how uh, my elders and my mentors were holding space for that. And how at the end of that, it wasn't that we walked out everybody holding hands and agreeing on everything, but we understood more about each other. And I think that that is such a powerful gift when the outcome isn't based on how well we like each other or the extremes or the X. It's just that we understand a little bit better. And so those experiences and understanding that in my community, uh, we also had to build institutions for community relief and community organization. And so, uh, for instance, we, we were having issues in, in our community around police accountability. And so when we got into that, we were hearing the needs of our community. And we said, well, if we feel like, and if we, we, we know that we need to, to set up a structure organization so that that folks can have their complaints heard and they feel like they're heard and seen Um, so we did that we pulled together some professors some some community folks and some folks who were committed to this and we began to be a site where folks felt comfortable bringing their complaints and we were like oh my goodness we we created an alternative and in this world when you can create an alternative and you can make it in such a way that it's responsive to the community's desires then you actually have the system, the bigger system uh, respond to that. And I think that that's important because there's so many times where we feel like there's frustration or stuck moments and we lose the creativity that happiness, I'll go back to that word, or that joy uh, can inspire us to do. And so we can create an alternative out of a stuck situation. We can turn tragedy into triumph. We can literally do what I think my, my theology tells me, take unearned suffering and make it redemptive. We didn't earn any of the the Jim Crow policies or slavery or Lynch law. We didn't earn any of that. So all of that unearned suffering and all of those those years, those centuries of pent-up, unrepentant kind of situations and circumstances, they have a redemptive quality if someone is willing to venture to go get it. Hmm.
2: That's so powerful. And, And you talk about reconciliation, and I've also heard you talk about liberation theology, and I'm curious to hear more about what that means to you. What is reconciliation? What is liberation theology? What is social justice work to you?
6: Um, having gone to, uh, to seminary and, and studied um, and, and learned about Black liberation theology, I learned that it emerged out of a real need for folks to have an identity and relationship with God that was distinctly different than the empire or the the super system that they lived under that denied them their humanity. Well, how does Jesus think about poverty? How does Jesus think about systemic racism? How does love, unconditional love, interact in a world that is diametrically opposed to some people existing at a rate of more than just a status quo? I had quite a journey spiritually where I, I had a certain understanding of, of God, and I said, well, you know, I need to think because it's not matching up with what I'm beginning to, to know and learn about the world. And I had to really go through a couple of processes. One was the self, to look at myself and say, what have I learned about myself? What, 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 what do I, how do I think of myself? And then how would God think of me in this context? Do I love my black skin, my dark, dark skin? Or do I sing songs of, of saying that I need to be white as snow And then I went to my history, and liberation theology pulls on the understanding of history and it pulls on the understanding of the present moment. And it talks about also a material condition. What is the material condition of folks? What is the lived experience of folks globally that speak to freedom? And what does freedom sound like in different places in the world? What does freedom sound like in a in a Black or LGBT community? What does freedom sound like in a, in a Cuban context? What does freedom sound like in Latin America, South America? It sounds different in the favelas than it does in government hallways. It, these things are different. And my own understanding is that I had to change my icons. And, and it is an issue that, that came at a, a turning point that when I walked into the church uh, early on, I used to see icons of a, a white and, blue, and blue-eyed Jesus. right, and, and, I, and I saw the flowing hair and And then when I experienced that in the world, it was a difference along lines of race that I started seeing inequities. But the one that I went and sang and praised to and walked under that was towering over 20 feet and looking down at me did not represent an image that looked like me. And not only that, I I began to read into that, that that's the way that I need to go. Can you imagine the out-of-body experience that happens subconsciously? And the pathways that are created and then, and then you get into the world and it confronts you and engages you. There's a there's a level of, of discord between my identity with my religion. And I, and I would say that in my learning and coming into that classroom and beginning to hear say someone say, Jesus is black. I was like Whoa, 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 hold on. What? <laughs> and and then having an image from a Time magazine that had Adam and Eve as black. And I said, What is going on? I, my whole world is shaking. But then my faith took me to places outside of this country. And I, I sat in condomblé communities in Salvador, Bahia, Brazil. And then I just began to say, You know what? My faith is this I'm anchored in a new understanding of Jesus. I'm so thankful for that. And the scriptures began to read differently. And I said, Whoa, whoa, the fullness of deity, the fullness of spirit can be inside of, of a person more than just one religion. Like, and so the spirit, of things comes and touches me in different ways. It's an animating factor in my life. And you'll hear me talk about darkness. Dark theology is is part of my my entry point into writing. I think about looking in the darkness, opening my eyes to this experience of of saying, "It's it's dark, it's dark, it's dark, it's dark, it's dark. But this is the place where it starts. The earth, the fullness of water, the fullness of light came out of a triple darkness in Genesis. And so I began to understand that what I, what I considered a dark period in my life where I had a falling away from one understanding actually became the very next doorway to my new understanding. And so I was so thankful for that creative space that came from a place that I would name as darkness, but I understood as differently. The same way I understand happiness differently now that I've had some life experiences.
2: That is so interesting. You're flipping it on its head where you're saying it's about hope right that you can you can start from darkness because there is hope that by understanding the darkness you can arise from it and and it it seems to me like as somebody working in gender equity work racial work lgbtq rights work in the south in particular the work that you're doing it it does feel like what you're trying to do is allow everyone an equal opportunity for happiness. Right? Can can you talk about that in particular because happiness, you know, it's this it's this idea that everyone has the same access to it. But is it do you see your work as trying to help others find joy, peace, connection, purpose.
6: Now I got songs coming up and I want to sing. That's what I'm thinking about. This a joy, Do joy, down in my soul, down in my soul, sweet, beautiful, soul-saving joy, down in my soul. I think this understanding of liberation theology brings us deeper into community. And it's not only about my own distinct, isolated, soul-saving experience where I feel good and I can sing my song. But if you can't sing it, then it's not harmony, and if then if I can't hear you and others can't hear you, then I, I really need to do some more work on the on the ears of the world, they should say. And so I would say the the barriers that we name in that naming, we are being able to, to move towards a solution. If you can't name it, uh, I think it's the Gospel of Thomas. If you can't name it, it has you. <laughs> you know, if you're not able to name it and 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 say what it is. Then it actually has its grips on you. And that's what suffering and, and, and hurt and pain come from. Not having the language to be able to describe that experience that is happening or say it. And I remember the joy of actually reading somebody that got it. I read, oh, they got it. Oh, wow. Yes. Thank you. I I, I feel my circumstances didn't change, but I can express it now. And I can tell you all about my situation. And so. Again, I think that these are ways that I come to understand spirit's guidance. I come to understand my experience, molding and shaping a kind of of presence. Be present uh, when the moment calls for it, and if it, if silence is also needed, that's also a way of being present.
2: Mm-hmm. The way that you're talking it is, to me is poetry, where you're you're sharing that it's almost just as important. Not only to experience the positive emotions, joy, happiness, but also they're more closely tied to the darkness, the deeper, sadder, more challenging emotions, anger, um, the struggle, and that they actually coexist and they have to coexist. What does that look like in practice? What are the deepest challenges that you're helping your community with?
6: I'm most present with this experience of, of mothers who have lost their children to gun violence. I, I'm actually very close to that community. And I say that because it's, it's probably the, the darkest moment to lose uh, a child, uh, particularly to gun violence. And being with this community, I, I would say that they mentor me in as much as they might account for me being a presence that is helpful. Um, and in these moments of, of entering in a space and knowing that you are going into a very, a, a challenge. It reminds me of my first experience of, of, of chaplaincy where I, I got to the door of the unit that I was going into and there was a double door. There was one door and then there was another. I, looked through the, I got through the first door and I looked through the window and I saw what I was being asked to do. And I got, I got frightened, I got scared, I got nervous. And I went back upstairs. I said, I can't do this. And I sat in in the office. And then after a while, after just praying and, and going back to some places, I was able to spend more time in that unit. And by the end of that year, I spent my extra time sitting in that space. And so it's a gradual kind of coming into community with folks, wherein that At the beginning, I was crying as much as everybody else in the room as we told the stories. As we get further along a little bit, I'm able to accompany from a space of being present and learning and listening to the pain and allowing the pain to be instructive as what to say and what to do, but guiding that with a spiritual covering over that whole space and saying that this space is for healing. This space is what we name as healing ground. But wherever this community of care shows up, that goes into the darkness, that goes into the spaces that are, are filled with, with unreconciled pain and places where the conversations haven't been started on, on what to do, but just where are we? And, and kind of in a wilderness situation, what we do is when you navigate, you put a mark on a tree to say, I've been there. You keep going, you go a little bit, you explore some more, put another mark on a tree when you get to another stopping point in the story. And so by the end of that, you're able to say, I've been to these places. And if you ever go back in that wilderness, you can say, oh, I've been here and somebody was with me. I always say our heart has four chambers. It has the capacity to hold more than one emotion, more than one dynamic. And if that is true, then I need to be able to express that and be helpful to others. And say it's okay to have more than one feeling right now. <laughs> it's okay. Joy and sorrow can 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 hang out together, and they can have a conversation that we can be vessels for.
3: Jesus has a plan yeah. to show you that Jesus understands yeah. when equity and justice is crucified to a cross. When fairness is crucified. To a cross. When doing the right thing is crucified to the cross. When doing the right thing at the right time, irrespective of what's going on around you is nailed to the cross. The plan to show you that I understand is to come to you first. Because what's inside of you is the concentration of what's made in the dark and not in the light. I want to bless you because when people who have suffered connect with each other, something happens in the unseen world. Because what's unseen is what you lost. But what becomes evident and seen is what you will gain. I thank God for this. Because there's no way I can pay you back with anything in this world. But when I restore to you, your dignity. When I restored in you who God made you to be. When you can look at your neighbor and say, you're beautiful. You know why? Because I see God in you. And when I see God in you, I can see a part of myself in you. So I have pushed back against self-criticism, self-hate, and I've turned towards self-love because there's something to tell you, that there's a plan larger, a plan bigger. Than anything your body can hold. So when you are destroyed, when this body is broken, and you're not the one on the cross, but you're witnessing the cross, it is to make room for an unimaginable gift that passes over death and brings forth life. I walked into a room just last night. Two mothers who lost their children to gun violence. Practicing the ministry of presence. I was going to come and do the pastoral greeting and then be on my way. But they were speaking, and tears were flowing freely, speaking right through that pain. And what they told me was yes, I appreciate your ministry of presence, but there is a ministry of absence that my son told me. He's not here, but he's here. It hurts, but I'm well. I woke up in pain, but I'm alright. I died and was destroyed, but I'll come back. I don't want to be paid back. Don't pay me anything to be here. Just show me that you understand. Just show me that you understand. Acquaint yourself with my suffering so that you can be free in this world that is full of suffering. Acquaint yourself with being misunderstood in a world full of misunderstandings. Acquaint yourself with standing up for righteousness for His name's sake. For the glory of the Lord. This is my mother. This is my son. Take care of each other. Love each other. Tell the truth. Shame the devil. Because in my blood are people that move from St. Louis to Mississippi. In my blood from Sandersville, Georgia and Cottonfields. From the west coast of Africa. passing through a door of no return. The stench of a slave castle. Yep. Oh, God. I can't pay you back, but my plan is to show you that I understand. <laughs> Destroyed, broken, crying. But you are my mother. You are my son, and the plan is to show you that I understand. <laughs> <laughs>
6: This sermon actually came came right out of my bones on that day. I, I I had no idea of a note. I had a lyric from Tupac Shakur who said, "Dear Mama, <laughs> there's no way I could pay you back." And um, I had met the mothers the the day the day before.
2: I imagine somebody who's come to you with such a deep loss uh, as a mother who's lost a child to gun violence in particular. What is your objective to help them heal? Is it, is it to get them to happiness? What's the journey that you want to accompany them through?
6: So it's twofold. One is to change the world so that no other mother or father or person has to experience the loss that they feel. But then while on the way, make a space for those that do experience that so that they can come in. And join and try to make this world a different place. The goal here is not to, to just be with each other. That, that's one level, uh, you know, that's one, under, one part of it. But we have to move out into this world and say we can't have a world that corrupts our own identity or corrupts people's identity to such a low level that they think it's okay to commit these kinds of acts of violence. And that, that, that this world can't continue to message us. That we are responsible or we are the ones that that did something wrong or right when there are systems that are at play and at work in very high and low places, powers and principalities that are at work. And we are the ones that are oftentimes on the end of the brunt force of all of that weight that are centuries of systemic outcomes, centuries of systemic outcomes. And so we are invested in creating and building a new world. And, in so doing, we are changed. What we Octavia Butler, what you touch changes, and what what touches you changes you. And you know all this this ethic of change, which amounts to being able to experience happiness because that is change, but also knowing that that's not the lasting effect. We need a, a sustainable world that brings us the peace and the and the joy and the the effects of having a material existence that that fits our human needs and helps us to express our human desire to do what God called us to do. You have a purpose. If you have something of, of, of to contribute towards the common good, you should be alleviated of the stresses and the barriers that are obstructing that. And when you can take those barriers and see them for what they are, that they're able to be changed. They're not fixed. Just as much as they were created, we have the same instructive power to be creative with the creation that we are a part of. I'm a part of creation. And when I look at the evergreen trees and I look at the trees that change their leaves and when I look outside and see a rabbit or a deer or I see uh, the mosquito that I have frustrations with, I'm a part of creation. I'm not only stuck in one ideal of being a human being. I'm part of a creation that is larger than these systems that were made that frustrate us so much. We have an abundance. We have an abundance in this world of all the things that our hearts desire. And I think that has been too too much power and too few hands for far too long. I think that there has been too much of a concentration that has balanced itself. When your happiness is really based on the exploitation of others, that's not happiness. And we don't need to call that happiness anymore. We really need to take away the label of happiness that obscures the suffering and the hurt of other people. And happiness really is fleeting, I think, in part because there are so many that are hurting in the world. And it can't sustain itself when it knows that there are other people hurting. At the end of the day, until all of us are granted and made into a society where happiness is available from our youngest to our eldest, even no matter what condition, You know, folks are in different conditions, different states of being, different states of mind, different abilities, differently abled. In all those ways, we all deserve this opportunity to move towards a sustainable happiness that's not based on the unhappiness of others.
2: I love that you said this, in particular because Lori Santos, our first in the series on happiness, said that there's psychological research that suggests that the one predictor of unhappiness in the society is the level of inequality within it. And it means that if anyone is supposedly happy through that, that lens of, I have wealth, I have status, I have things in my world because others do not, we actually can't truly be happy. We have to break down those systems that you were talking about and Make sure that others have access to the things that bring us true joy, which is purpose. Yeah. That's
6: why community is so powerful. I'm thinking about sitting in a circle, five people in a circle. And I'm actually going to when I was a kid. So let me go all the way back there. Five of my kid friends, my five best friends sitting in a circle in the same space, outside, sitting in the same space. If one of them was just crying and bawling their eyes out and just hurting, and we all, the rest of us are just happy, that, that, that just would not work. But we don't see each other. We don't have to, we can go to an enclave. We can go to our own, uh, our own space far away from, from folks who are hurting or crying. But if you had to sit in the same room, you would have to attend to it so that you can be free in a world that's full of suffering. It means that there is happiness in the most mentally defined, miserable, and painful circumstances. Happiness deserves a modifier. (laughs) True happiness that is experienced in a community of folk who have taken on this life. And so suffering is a transformer uh, in many ways. And it's nothing to... uh, would say lift up suffering in a improper way, Uh, but it's to acknowledge that suffering happens and it happens as being part of a world that's struggling to be a better world. And in that we play a part. And I'm beginning to say, it's okay. I can be happy in the midst of the darkness.
0: 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows of being alive can easily become overwhelming. Our best-laid plans will not unfold exactly as we want, and the world around us and inside us is always in flux. Knowing this, we can build a toolbox of internal resources to help us flourish while we navigate the rough waters of life. The Thriving on Change video course offers an understanding to do just that. Join Elad Levinson as he mines the jewels of wisdom with deep thinkers like Joseph Grenny, Sylvia Borstein, and Daniel Goleman. This video course offers a solid understanding of the internal tools needed to thrive both personally and professionally. Find the Thriving on Change video course at keystepmedia.com shop.
5: I saw a poem, it's called The Charmed Life. And it's really about the sadness of a charmed life. It says, if you get everything easily, you may lose touch. You may not hear the shout from the ravine. You may not notice the streak of dirt on on the face of the woman who's holding that sign and needs some help. And it's because of a loss of empathy.
1: Yeah, Wes also talks a lot in his interview about going into the shadow side and about the nature of pain and suffering and how the alleviation of pain is often just in the acknowledgement of pain and being able to have language, to give language to it, and also being able to have others who can sit with us in our pain so that we feel safer to be able to touch those, those darker shadow places and know that um, we're accompanied and that we're supported in that.
0: Wesley talks about creation and in the present moment where creation is happening, everything is all of the joy is here and all of the pain is here. And so when we step into our place in creation, we look around and it's all happening. That's what it means to step into ourselves, to really inhabit our place in this world. And when we look around from that perspective We are a part of creation. It's not about us individually anymore. And I deeply appreciate Wesley's integration of social justice into this, because from the perspective of present moment awareness, we are all here. And the only thing to do is to Help ourselves and each other because we are all here. And so, so the only thing to do in that moment, if you're really there, is to reach your hands out and help those around you.
5: I see two very important parts of emotional intelligence. One has to do with how inspiring Wes is, uh, because he can articulate a shared sense of purpose, and he does it in a way that resonates, and that's inspiring. And the second thing is that he sees making the world a better place, essentially, as the shared purpose, but he can put it together in language that really lights us up. And I think in order to do that, he has to have a positive outlook. He has to see the hope in what other people might see as hopelessness. He has to see the possibility of change for the better when things seem so dire. And I think that takes a lot of empathy. I think uh, he's able to tune in.
1: Yeah. it's, It's such a beautiful nod to interconnectivity, but it also, as I was listening to Wes speak, again, thinking through the lens of emotional intelligence, I was actually thinking a lot about positive outlook and the kind of shadow side of positive outlook, which is the spiritual bypassing or the sense that If we just continually focus on the positive in our own lives or on cultivating positive thoughts, then that's enough to sustain happiness, even if that comes at the cost of ignoring or choosing not to look at the suffering of others.
0: This whole series about happiness and uh, what it means and what it doesn't mean and what leads to it and what doesn't lead to it makes me think a lot about greed, which is one of those three... Uh, poisons, they call them in Buddhism, greed, hatred, and delusion. And greed is such a powerful motivator. There's greed that, that moves us towards things and aversion that moves us away from things when we're not present. Then we don't see the greed coming and it swoops us up. Those things just don't have the sway over us because we see them coming and we recognize them and we watch them disintegrate. Or we watch them hang out. We hang out with them. What's up, greed? I see you.
4: <laughs> hmm. I also...
1: <laughs> yeah, I think you're pointing to something Wesley was talking about too, which I think of as a state of equanimity in some way, which is just like the welcoming in of all things, the welcoming in of the uh, sort of things that we think are, um, are opposites or contradictory to one another, but are actually existing side by side. Um, And I, as you're talking about greed, you know, I think in a most straightforward way, we think about greed in terms of material possessions or, or some of what we've spoken about with Natalie about the desire for objects or a certain lifestyle. But as you were talking, I was also thinking, what is it to be greedy around our righteousness? What is it to be greedy around our beliefs, our ideologies, um, the way we think things should be, ought to be, and you know, thinking about this so much lately because I've been feeling so. Um, I mean, talk about happiness or the things that deter from happiness. The the righteousness, the polarization, and the shaming of others that comes out of that righteousness and polarization is something I've felt very attuned to uh, <laughs> recently. And.
0: <laughs> Did you just say you've felt very attuned to the righteousness? The
1: righteousness is something I have felt very, yeah, t- aware of, aware of, you know? Yeah. Attu- I mean, aware of because I can feel it in my own self. So there is some sense of attunement, right? It's like, it's that's it, you know? And that has that same greedy energy to me of like, I want, I want to be right. I want to be correct. And there's an interesting pull there that I've been playing with. I don't know that I've totally made sense of it, but it...
0: No, I think that's an important, important underlying drive. And another piece of what you're... of that experience is the clinging. There's the, the part that lets us not be able to see another perspective, not let go of what... of the identity of beliefs that we've gathered around ourselves that, that we think we are. It's hard to let go, especially... The, the deeper we identify with a belief, the harder it is to let go of that belief. And the more freedom there is in letting go from that belief.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Thanks for joining us for our three-part series on happiness. Check in next week for a special episode on the science of stress and renewal with distinguished Case Western Reserve professor Richard Boyatzis, followed by our next three-part series on attention and focus. You can send us a message using our SpeakPipe app at firstpersonplural.com for a chance to hear your voice in a future episode. We want to know, what do you find most distracting and overwhelming? And what do you do to stay focused at work or school?
2: Thanks for listening to First Person Plural, EI and beyond. Subscribe now and sign up for our newsletter to get notified as new episodes are released. This show is brought to you by our co-hosts, Daniel Goleman, Hanuman Goleman, and Elizabeth Solomon, and is sponsored by Keystep Media, your source for personal and professional development materials focused on mindfulness, leadership, and emotional intelligence. Special thanks to Amelia, whose voice you heard at the top of the show, and to today's guest, Wesley Morris. For guest bios, transcripts, and resources mentioned in today's episode, check out our episode notes on our website, firstpersonplural.com. This episode was written and produced by Elizabeth Solomon and me, Gabriela Acosta. Episode art and production support by Bryant Johnson. Music in this episode includes Il Umbu de Ciel Blue" by Mons Basier, and theme music by Amber Ojeda. Until next time, be well.
0: If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate our show and submit a review. It helps us spread the word about the show. If you want to go the extra mile to support our show, you can become a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can get exclusive access to extended interviews and behind-the-scenes content. Sign up at patreon.com slash firstpersonplural.